Welcome back to Everyman Academy. Class, quickly take your seats as we conclude this discussion on Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. In the first two parts of this analysis, I really wanted to set up the plot. You've met the characters, Kitty and Levin, Dolly, Steva, Alexei, Anna, and Vronsky. The relationships and how they interact with each other, what goes on in the setting of Russia at the time of the reign of Alexander II. This book is fascinating because it is a time capsule, a time gone to us. We can pick up this book and be transported back there like no textbook documentary or Wikipedia article ever could. You want to read the words by someone that was living at the time, speaking to the unique social issues. It gives so much nuance. This is why learning by reading is such an effective method of understanding history and comparing it to our times now. Last episode, we left off with a dramatic horse race. I very much wanted to recreate that set piece, a highlight of the book, a moment that everything changes for so many characters. This book, being of realist tradition, was impressive because never before had this new genre been so realistic and true to life. The characters behave in an unexpected, not predictable way. During this era in the late 19th century, the reign of Alexander II, he lifted a lot of the authoritarian laws in this traditionally feudal society. Believe it or not, they didn't have free speech over there. But at this time period, intellectual ideas were flourishing. The Russian literary tradition is well known and influential. Many artistic strides were made in this medium. The direct manner in which we understand from a third-person perspective what is going on, the inner workings of their psychology, it's grounded in matter of fact. The intuitive social nuance, the way in which human beings, through their motivations, behaviors, it's all going on here in Anna Karenina. The woman question, which is discussed quite a bit, what to do with women? In a time across the Western world, which Russia is trying to figure out if they're a part of, women and people in general were given more rights. The old world, kings, rulers directly ruling their subjects, is becoming a thing of the past in favor of parliamentary government. And really, we must understand the aristocracy kind of moving into the shadows, working collectively through a hegemony. Utilizing forms such as literature, journals, pamphlets, and so on to subtly guide the masses in a subtler way. The aristocracy, one big club. After all the infighting of the Middle Ages, here we are at the late 19th century and everyone seems to be getting along. The cool kids, England and France, both have their distinct identity. Other parts of Europe look to these two countries as influence of how to be or how to behave, or what's the new social norm, the trendsetters, the tastemakers. Russia doesn't know, are they England, are they France, are they Europe, or are they themselves? They were brought into Europe by Peter the Great, being a part of the European aristocracy, began in the 18th century, and now we see the reign of Alexander II. They're trying to figure out things in a feudal society, how to bring in industrialization, how to end serfdom how to bring in rights and freedoms, how to have industry in a place that is traditionally feudal. It's quite interesting because the rise of parliamentary government and freedom happened more naturally in the city-state European agrarian manoral economic system. These traditionally feudal societies had a much harder time adapting. Levin, the intellectual, 
pontificating with other intellectuals about what to do. What is the right thing to do? It's not fair from their perspective that the peasants should be oppressed. He gets all this and they don't get anything. And yet in the fields, he notices they're perfectly happy. He romanticizes this simple life, trying to figure out his identity in the country, trying to figure out how to be a good ruler, be one of them, identify with the peasants. And he realizes he's really not one of them. And his love is renewed for Kitty. Then on the other hand, we see Anna rebelling against Alexei. We see that he's actually a sensitive soul. The way that he's dealt with his emotional tendencies is to temper them through intellect and politics. Anna has interpreted this as coldness, as a callousness, a proudness, being proud and cold and bleak and legal. She never felt loved by him, and meanwhile, he never knew how to express it. When she has an affair, he doesn't react in the way that she expects him to, and she becomes increasingly more frustrated every time she acts out. After the race where Vronsky's horse Fru-Fru was destroyed, she outright tells him, I hate you, and yet he doesn't react the way she expects. All he asks for is a little bit of decorum, and he even will turn a blind eye to Vronsky and Anna's relationship. Vronsky very much just wants to move on with Anna. He loves her, and he's ready to make a life with her. The choice is easy for him. Having an affair in society at this time was tricky. They're stuck in between the social change of the way things used to be and the way that things are becoming. There's even a clash between different cities, St. Petersburg being the more progressive city and Moscow being the older city, the more traditional, conventional, conservative city. Because of the inequality between male and female, Vronsky has a much easier time navigating this. We see Steva can be a womanizer, and it's perfectly accepted. Whereas Anna has a much harder time. She can be completely ruined if she's divorced. Vronsky comes from means. Of course, Anna does too. They both can navigate this change, at least Vronsky thinks, but Anna doesn't want to take the risk. Anna very much cares about what people think about her. She'll be ruined in society, and she doesn't want that. She can't handle that. Which brings us to another interesting literary theme. Being a member of the privileged few. The first time I was introduced to this concept was in Pride and Prejudice. The Bennett family very invested in maintaining their status as one of the privileged few. Here for the first time, it's not romanticized. Leo Tolstoy, after all, was a member of the Russian aristocracy. We see many trappings of this life. No matter what you do, you're given access to the finer things in life, but you're also slave to a certain level of social norm. Eventually, halfway through the book, Anna and Vronsky elope. They go to Italy, and Vronsky, we see he's changed. That horse race with Fru-Fru has him twiddling his mustache perhaps a little bit less, thinking about how to spend his life, and he considers the arts as purveyors of arts and culture. Anna Vronsky and a buddy of his, they're bored in this idle way of living and eventually find their way back to the fringes of Russian life in a country estate. The union of Kitty and Levin is a big highlight of this book. After all, I am a married man. I found myself wrapped up in Levin's experience on his wedding day, remembering my own. And of course, it's not happily ever after and realistic depictions of married life. Levin has to deal with the fact he's not a single guy anymore. Levin tries to flee to see his brother when he's sick, and Kitty has to come along. In subsequent chapters, we eventually see Levin realizing the error of his ways. Kitty continuously shows herself to be a compassionate, caring, feminine 
woman, despite her regal status. Kitty's from a more regal line than Levin. He's somewhat intimidated. When his brother's sick, he doesn't want to take her there. He's ashamed. Doesn't want his new wife to be disgusted by his state of living. Nevertheless, when Kitty comes along, much to Levin's frustration, she shows herself to be the compassionate, caring, feminine woman that he always was attracted to. The development of Anna as a character, and maybe even her downfall, one might be able to call it misogynistic. However, Anna exists along other portrayals of women, such as Kitty and Dolly. So Tolstoy has a very comprehensive view of the human condition, both man and woman. We see the nuance of human personality. We understand them through their thoughts, especially in the case of Levin, or through their feelings, like in the case of Anna. But this book is long. Oh, is it long? And there's many deviations. There's many chapters. Now, the chapters are bite-sized, and they're easy to read. Not a lot of big words. It's simple in its prose. I like books like this because you can pick it up for a day and quickly feel like you've completed your task of reading by just absorbing one chapter. And if you want to read a few more, that's not too difficult a task as well. So this book, as long as it may be, and as intimidating as it may sound just because of the Russian names, is very much worth picking up. Indeed, these are more than characters. They're almost like family members. They seem so real. Going into this book, I knew very little about Russia. Buried somewhere in my wife's family tree is some Russian ethnicity. I feel pride about that, having read Anna Karenina. So this book is so much more than what happens to these characters. The conversations that pop up illustrate the social themes of the day. There's much to do about religion. Levin is the conduit for Leo Tolstoy's theological ideas. Now in Russia, they have their own form of Orthodox Christianity. Russia, the Orthodox Church broke off from the Vatican. And the Russian Orthodox Church continued this theological tradition and is very much rooted in the theology as well as the culture, the images, the canon of the Eastern Orthodox Church very much is a part of Russia as well. And again, I don't know a lot about it, but on this journey to educate the mind, sometimes we only need to be introduced to something just a little bit and these themes will pop up again. Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina is a really great primer. And as we continue on this journey, I'm sure in many areas of world history, and life in general, will come into view with greater clarity. With each book, Russia, as a country, as a nation, the role they played on the world stage, especially when we think about the 20th century and the rise of communism, all of this means quite a lot when looking at the world around us today. Thematically, there's a lot to be said that pops out, but I'm not sure there's any sort of symbolic meaning in here that I notice quite yet. But nevertheless, this idea of the fallen woman. We've seen it in other books, specifically Madame Bouvery. She has a tragic end, and so too does Anna Karenina. I'm not going to get into the spoilers there. You can pick up the book for yourself to see how it ends, but it's not so great for Anna, sadly enough. In keeping with this podcast and the overall theme, which is classical education by reading the Western canon, I wanted to end with this quote from the book. They're talking about what's happening at the time and the plight they're dealing with. Do you continue educating the youth in the classical style or not? They're talking about the free thinkers that were brought up on atheism, negation, and materialism. It used to be the case that a free thinker was someone brought up on ideas of religion, law, and morality, who came to free thinking by dint of struggle and hard work, 
But now there is a new breed of unorthodox freethinkers growing up who have never even heard of laws of morality or religion or authorities, and who are growing up from the very beginning with ideas of negating everything as savages, in other words. And naturally, growing up in this manner, you'll want to educate yourself. And what do you turn to? Journals. And a person who wants to educate himself in the old days, you understand. You'd start by studying all the classics the theologians, the, the tragedians, the historians, and the philosophers. You can imagine the sheer intellectual hard work. And that's not all. About 20 years ago, he would have found in that literature signs of a struggle with authorities, with age-old views. And he would have realized from the struggle that there was something else possible. But nowadays, he will come straight to a literature in which old-fashioned attitudes are not even dignified with argument and which says straight out there's nothing but evolution, natural selection, and that's all. Well, if that doesn't speak to us today, this is the nature of the argument and my plight as the host of Everyman Academy, doing my best to pass the torch along, continuing the legacy of Mortimer Adler, and the promotion of the great books of the Western world, not only reading them, but reading them intelligently, ensuring that you have absorbed what the author has actually said. And in doing so, gathering innumerable lessons about history that provide context to our day. You see, erasing this method of education, you can more properly attain more modern philosophies. You can consider these new sciences, not just in an appeal to authority, not because it is so, but based off your own reasoning boiled down to the very essence how you know what you know. How many of us right now can sit here and say, we have considered everything we know, not only what we know, but how we know it. How much of what we know is simply because someone told it to us? How much have we considered for ourselves, investigated the claims, looked into the multiple factors, and examined the veracity? Do we consider new ideas with an open mind, or do we reflexively recoil and attack someone at the mere thought of something different than we ever considered. As you know, there are many people out there today. I'd imagine if you're listening to me now, you're not one of those people. Reading in this manner will open your mind. Every day you'll be forced to encounter new perspectives and ideas from a different time. It flexes and grows the muscle of your mind. Objectively point out flaws in argumentation and logic. Skeptically appraise the claims of advertisements. Notice and identify the history between fact and fiction, history and fantasy, black, white, and the nuanced gray in between. We need each other. We need to tolerate a conversation and engage in civilized rhetoric, free from abusive language and the debasement of a world that lives on outrage. Levin, at the end of this book, comes to a realization. Despite all his education, his consideration for morals and the plight of the peasants, what to do, how to deal with his status as a landowner, how to be a good husband, these questions about theology and what happens, what's the meaning of life, what is the thing that held him back most of all, intellectual pride. As we educate our minds, we must keep them open, understand that pride will hold us back. The devil was prideful after all. Here and there you might hear the word pride, understand what it means. Being proud, just a degree away from the emotion of agitation and anger. It's quick to react. It's quick to attack. It's quick to be defensive. It's puffed up. And the last thing it's going to do is stop and consider that 
there could be a better way, a different way, that maybe we don't know everything. What's the difference between an educated mind and an uneducated mind? Simply knowing the line between what you know and what you do not. Reading the classics in this manner, following through with it, even when it's challenging. Letting these books stretch your mind, day after day, some days more than others. We follow through with them to the book's end, and we learn how to follow through with things in a world of instant gratification. We have to be able to follow through with things. We're creatures of habit. The more we do it, the more we understand, and great books are simply great. If they don't get through to us, it's not the failing of the book. We must stretch our mind, and it is our job to put forth effort to understand them. It is not necessary to enjoy them. In fact, if you continue on and finish the book, you have earned the right to channel your opinion in a thoughtful and rational way. By all means, take the opportunity to channel your opinion. Many books aren't probably worth the pedestal in which they're placed upon, and if you have merit and good cause to do so, knock them down. There are many authors that have been preserved behind glass in an agenda to sustain a legacy. Perhaps it's unwarranted. If that is the case, feel free to smash the idols. We are humans. We deserve the right to have a dialogue about what anyone can pick up and absorb. In the age of information, we are free from the gatekeeping of academic institutions. I hope you will be inspired to continue this journey with me. Anna Karenina is a great book. Now, not all great books are enjoyable to read, but this one certainly was. I will return to it with glee one day. I hope that I am welcomed by these characters as if they're family members because they certainly feel like members of my family now. Leo Tolstoy does an amazing thing. Without compromising our morality or dignity, we are able to find empathy for each and every character in this book. They're all relatable, human, and real, but their flaws serve as a mirror to each individual that reads this book. Perhaps an interesting conversation, who we related to in each book and why. In the world of social media and podcast promotion, I've found my voice on Twitter. Please follow me, at Everyman Academy. Post every day. Try to distill the message and essence of this podcast in tweet form. I've been pleasantly surprised. Many people are receptive to hearing my true, unadulterated, unfiltered feelings. So I'm going to bring that all into this podcast as it continues to evolve. Next episode, we'll be breaking down Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. I'm looking forward to discussing that one with you. So until next time, class dismissed.